trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and approved by all 50 state bars for IOLTA compliance. LawPay. I looked over at the camera crew with this look of, is this a joke? And they just looked back at me with cameras rolling, not saying a word. And I realized in that moment, this is a legitimate question by her. Take a second and imagine this unusual circumstance. You have a new client. You haven't met them before. And the first time they come to your office, they bring a camera crew with them. What do you do? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and this is the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, where we explore some of the more unusual corners of the legal profession and the law. I might be one of the few legal affairs journalists who admits to being a huge fan of Bravo TV's Real Housewives series and Southern Charm and TLC's 90 Day Fiancé and many other reality TV programs most, if not all, of which are usually characterized as being frivolous, with fake storylines celebrating bad behavior. I'm also a chronic binge-watcher of true crime shows, like the Netflix series Making a Murderer, Abducted in Plain Sight, and Don't F with Cats. Sometimes on these reality shows, lawyers show up, because, let's face it, legal problems can make for good TV. I always wonder what it's like for attorneys to be on reality TV, How do they know what to say and what not to say? How do their appearance affect them and their clients? Did being on TV bring them more business, and do they look back on the experience as a good one? Or was it a mistake? Ultimately, the answers we got in this show surprised me. But let's not spoil anything. Instead, let's explore the circumstances that would lead to lawyers' TV appearances and what goes through their mind when they're filmed. Our guests have a lot to say about those topics, and they dispel some of the misconceptions about reality TV for cast members and their lawyers. To get us started, we spoke with someone who knows the reality TV industry inside and out. My name is Michael Beck. I am the president of Bishop Peak Productions. Michael Beck is a showrunner and producer whose production credits include Bravo TV's Real Housewives of Atlanta, Southern Charm, and Married to Medicine. He has worked with many lawyers appearing in front of his cameras. I feel like uh, attorneys are made for television Uh for the most part. (laughs) Um, You know, lawyers are very savvy people. When you do this kind of work, when you're on television like this, you know, your audience and the story you're telling is kind of, um, is obviously important. And we know that the court of public opinion is very important. And I think that, you know, depending on what the matter may be, will kind of, guide the attorney on what they want to do. Do they want this to be something that's shown on television to gain sympathy or to have the public gain a little bit of knowledge about a certain situation? Or is this something that they feel like, let's not put this on screen because this is probably going to hurt you in the long run? A common complaint with reality TV is that it's all fake. People say it's scripted, that producers tell cast members what to say and just want to set up outrageous storylines. And the shows are nowhere close to reality. That's not true, according to Michael. What you see on TV is real, but sometimes when cast members meet with lawyers, the scene might require a few extra takes, mostly so the lawyer speaks in a way that non-lawyers watching the show can understand. Also, he says that usually, when a cast member's lawyer makes an appearance in front of the camera, 
the scene isn't about them. It's about their client. The legal advice is merely a storytelling tool. But while reality TV may seem exaggerated and simply designed to entertain, other TV formats embrace a far more serious tone. If, like pretty much everyone else, you've watched the popular Netflix series Making a Murderer, you're probably familiar with this lawyer. I'm Jerry Buting, and I practice in Wisconsin. I've been practicing almost exclusively criminal law for 38 years, first as a public defender in the trial office in Milwaukee, and for about the last 25 years or so in private practice, trying cases and doing post-conviction appeals as well. Jerry and his co-counsel, Dean Strang, rose to global prominence in 2015 when the first season of Making a Murderer showed their representation of Stephen Avery. Avery served 18 years in prison for sexual assault, but was released when his conviction was thrown out. He was subsequently arrested on unrelated murder charges, which was when Jerry and Dean got involved. At the start of their representation of their client, Jerry and Dean agreed to be filmed while working on the case, and in exchange, the filmmakers agreed to stop interviewing Avery, who had spoken with them before Jerry and Dean signed on as counsel. Well, I think like any lawyer, you're nervous and, you know, uncomfortable with the the whole idea of a client talking to anyone about his case, and particularly on camera when it's being recorded. Initially, I think that we were concerned, but of course, he had already been charged for four months and had already decided that he was comfortable speaking with the filmmakers. And once we got on the case, we prevented any further contact without going through us first. If you're a lawyer representing your client and a film crew is present, control is a real concern. Here's how Jerry and Dean went about trying to manage the situation. When we first talked to the film crew, you know, we had a number of concerns about risks. Uh, You know, first of all, we knew that we would have no editorial control over anything that we agreed to say on film, and neither would our client. And that, therefore, you know, lawyers like to be in control, you know, and and that's a big loss of control when you agree to do that. What we were concerned about was uh, a couple of things. One, and these are the ground rules and the only ground rules that we set with the filmmakers. One is that they would not be present and they would not record or listen to any communications that we had with our client that would be attorney-client privileged. And if viewers of Making a Murder will notice, you'll, you'll hear Stephen's voice quite a bit in the film and our voice in the film, but you never hear any back and forth between us because uh, that was honored. There were no recordings of any attorney-client communications. The second thing that we were also concerned about was pretrial publicity. There had been an enormous amount of very negative pretrial publicity to date, and we did not want there to be further publicity coming out of you know, including recordings coming out of the filmmaking process. So one of the conditions was that nothing would air, not even a trailer, until after both Stephen and Brendan's trials had been completed. Now, you know, when I look back on that, that's really kind of a laughable condition. We had no idea how long it took to put together a documentary. I mean, there's no, virtually no way that would have happened anyway. 
And in fact, in their case, it took many years, like eight years or something before uh, it ultimately came out on Netflix. But that was a concern of ours. While Jerry and Dean tried to manage the situation through what they saw as reasonable ground rules, the loss of control exposed them to some less predictable problems, particularly in regards to their opposing counsel. We also, by the way, thought and knew that they had made a similar overture to the district attorney to participate in law enforcement. And as far as we knew, they were. We later learned that Special Prosecutor Ken Kratz had refused to participate. And about two months or three months before the trial, he even went so far as to subpoena the filmmakers, trying to get all of their raw footage turned over to the prosecution in advance of the trial. Uh, They were forced to hire a lawyer, raise First Amendment grounds, and ultimately the judge quashed the subpoena. But, you know, that was a risk too, I suppose, Looking back on it, it wasn't something I anticipated, but that was a possible risk that could have happened if uh, the prosecutor had gained access to any sessions where we were preparing, brainstorming, talking about our defense and how we would approach the case. While documentaries can take years to produce, television programs can be developed much more quickly. As such, I really want to explore how different the experience would be for an attorney who found themselves on reality TV. My name is Dustin Sullivan. I am a criminal defense attorney here in North Carolina. Dustin Sullivan came to national attention when he took on the representation as a court-appointed attorney of Janelle Evans, a cast member on MTV's Teen Mom. When I first got this case and found out that Janelle had worked for a TV show and wanted to film some of the meetings, one of the very first issues that came in my mind where there's not going to be any attorney-client privilege, any communications without the cameras rolling. So I had to contact the bar and find out exactly what we needed to do. Obviously, there were times where we would speak when there weren't cameras rolling, but the camera crews MTV wanted to film conversations about pending criminal matters, film while we were having a meeting, which normally would be privileged. So Janelle had to basically sign a waiver saying, I'm I'm waiving my right to confidentiality with regards to the discussions that are taking place. A former state prosecutor Dustin says that he didn't watch Team Mom after the first season because, unlike me, he's not a big TV watcher. And when he's not working, he prefers to be outside doing things or reading books. But he does have a good story about the show, and it involves a video clip that went viral, inspired dozens of memes, and is often referred to as the feathers in her hair moment. As centers are in agreement, Dustin had meticulously worked out with the prosecution on Janelle's behalf an unexpected conflict between the terms of that agreement and his client's love of the pop star Kesha, a performer known for dance songs about love, sex, having a good time, and not caring about what people think of you. This is my favorite story about my entire representation, honestly. I was asked to film outside of the office and meet in Wilmington, North Carolina at a local restaurant. 
so yeah, I, I met at the restaurant and there we were in the process of discussing a plea arrangement, which nobody watching the show or nobody would know that it took weeks to negotiate what I was trying to get done. And so many, many meetings, many phone calls, many emails, and finally we got an agreement in place. And so I was happy to present this agreement with her. And so as I'm giving the agreement with her, she looked over at me and asked me, but can I, can I continue my case? But I just got these feathers in my hair. I want to go see the Kesha concert. And I thought to myself, <laughs> one, who is Kesha? I, I really had no idea who it was. Why are feathers in your hair? Why are, why, why are feathers in your hair? Exactly. <laughs> and I looked over at the camera crew, and I'm assuming this was edited. I looked over at the camera crew with this look of, is this a joke? And they just looked back at me with cameras rolling, not saying a word. And I realized in that moment, this is a legitimate question by her. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the clip, but I think my response was, no, I'm, I'm not going to present that to <laughs> the DA. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Part of building a successful practice is finding the right payment partner. It's important to work with a processor that understands the complex rules for legal payments. LawPay is the only payment solution that ensures trust account compliance for both credit card and e-check transactions. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and approved by all 50 state bars for IOLTA compliance. LawPay. Before the break, we heard from Dustin Sullivan, who was counsel for Janelle Evans, and he shared a funny story about his time representing her. But her cases were serious. Sometimes, People forget that reality TV cast members are real people with real problems. Janelle's story in particular is a sad one. She had her first child, a boy named Jace, when she was 17 years old. Her story also includes drug addiction, domestic violence, losing custody of her son to her mother, and having two more children and two different husbands, all before turning 30. Dealing with a difficult set of problems like these can be hard, and the opportunity to appear on a show like Teen Mom certainly afforded Janelle the financial opportunities she might not have had otherwise. But Dustin isn't convinced it was all good for his clients. Yeah, there were lots of moments that I heard about the show that involved Janelle that didn't have anything to do with me. There would be tape that was airing of her being around somebody that maybe she shouldn't be around or... I was hearing things of drug use occurring. Obviously, these were issues with a pending criminal case. With her fame came a lot of, I personally believe, misfortune because, you know, I, I think I represented Janelle on about 30 plus charges, something around there. The vast majority of those charges, I think, were just somebody trying to get their name in the paper. Let's return to the subject of control from earlier. 
When the cameras are rolling, attorneys can try to exercise a certain degree of control by deciding what they and their clients say and do, but nobody's perfect, and sometimes things don't go exactly as planned. And unfortunately for them, attorneys have far less control than they'd prefer over what happens after the footage is shot. There were times where (laughs) I would ask the crew to maybe edit something that I had said. We were in this period of filming. It was over the course of, I think it was about a year and a half, where you begin to just forget that the cameras are there somehow. (laughs) And I may have made a comment about someone that I probably should not have made a comment about. And so I'd say, listen, that comment was not appropriate. I'd ask that you edit it. And I'm assuming it was edited, but I never watched the show to see. (laughs) Here's Jerry Buting again, talking about one such event he was uncomfortable having shown on TV. It involves a conversation with his co-counsel, Dean Strang. And in the end, it resulted in what I consider to be one of the most pivotal moments in the series. You know, there is one time when I asked them to not use footage, and I was unsuccessful, and it ended up in making a murder. It's uh, kind of a silly part, I thought, where right after we had discovered that the blood vial was in the clerk's office, you know, literally across the atrium in this old courthouse from the Manitowoc County Police, or Sheriff's Department, rather, and, and that they could have easily had access to it and that it was still liquid. For whatever reason, which I don't recall at the moment, Dean wasn't able to be there when we opened up the, the styrofoam kit uh, in front of the prosecutor and one of the detectives. So I called Dean from, I forget where it was, probably a hotel I was staying at, and that's the red-letter day discussion that ends up in making a murderer. I frankly had forgotten that they were even filming. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was kind of, I thought, and after I hung up, I looked over and realized they were there filming, and I said, oh, you didn't, you're not going to use that, are you? Because I felt like I, I acted kind of giddy and like a dork. Even though they did not cut what Jerry wanted cut, and maybe for the best, Jerry still felt some frustration about what was left out. As it turns out, they focused only on the issue that, that I was telling him that there was this hole in the rubber stopper. Um, But in fact, there were other aspects about it being unsecure that were just as important later. But anyway, I I don't know. It's it's a a minor point. I'm not going to quibble over it. But that's really the only time that I can think of when I, either one of us, afterwards thought, hey, don't use that footage. I wonder, too, if Michael Beck, the reality TV producer and showrunner, could provide us with a perspective on this from the business side. You know, unfortunately, that's a uphill battle because, you know, they have signed a consent form. They've basically given us permission. And once that agreement is signed, it's kind of fair game on our end. But we've definitely had situations, not necessarily about legal issues, but about anything that comes on the screen where a cast member's attorney will reach out and try and push back and fight. But I'll tell you, these these um, agreements and these deal memos that cast members sign before we even start shooting, they're pretty ironclad. And so, you know, once that is looked over by a cast member's attorney or agent or whomever, and that's signed off, they're, they're pretty strict. 
I'll tell you, these networks, they don't really give in. It doesn't really matter to them. I mean, sometimes they'll make a few exceptions um, because, you know, we want to keep cast members happy. We want to keep good relationships. But like I said, those agreements are they're pretty ironclad. There's not much change after you put your signature on that dotted line. But despite the risks that arise from giving up control, many would assume that an appearance on programs like these would provide benefits for attorneys and their clients. For their clients, this can be a chance to affect the narrative of their legal battles or address issues with their public image. But how about for attorneys? Do these types of appearances materially help their business? Here's what Michael Beck says. You're doing us a favor, so let us do you a favor and advertise your business. And if you want to, you know, have signage or if you have a logo on your shirt or something, we're more than happy to that as long as you sign an agreement giving us permission to show that logo on camera. But you know, I think that that's kind of the point for them is that they want to advertise themselves, advertise their business. They want to show an audience how good they are at what they do. And I think the attractiveness to them is that maybe they can get more clients. A lot of the time we will hear that as soon as the show airs, their phones don't stop ringing. We have businesses that will beg us to come back. If there's a second season, they'll beg us to come back and film with them again because there's such a spike in business after these air. That seems pretty logical. After all, both Jerry and Dustin have received a great deal of publicity from these appearances. But let's hear how it actually played out for them. So as far as the charging was concerned, I charged her the exact same price that I would charge Joe Smith. And obviously that was a fault of me. And the amount of hours of film time that did take place were a lot more than I ever would have thought. And there could have been three times that had I said yes to every time that they wanted to film. And it's just hours upon hours upon hours of time that you could be working on other cases. And it's really, you're just filming. So you don't bill by the hour generally. You charge, it sounds like you get your retainer to do the work and that's what the price is. Correct. Yeah. So we charge flat rate fees and not hourly. If it was hourly, oh man, I would have been, oh, I'll be happy to film with you. Okay. So maybe a viral moment isn't enough to make a big change for a lawyer's practice. And not everyone watches reality TV. But what about for Jerry? Making a murder, after all, has been a pretty big hit. You know, a lot of people think that Dean and I got rich off of making a murder. and, And, you know, that's just not the case. First of all, Netflix paid us nothing. That's, that's a lot of people think that the people in the documentary were paid and they weren't. As far as I know, nobody was paid other than the film producers and they, you know, whatever they got, I'm sure was deserved. You know, we did have some, I did write a book, Illusion of Justice, Inside Making a Murder in America's Broken System that came out two years ago. And, you know, I made some money off a book and some speaking opportunities. But for all of that, we had to reduce our paying client business in order to take the time to do the you know speaking tour and write a book and all of that so there's you know i'm not complaining at all it was a worthwhile experience but it, it wasn't a get rich quick scheme like a lot of people misunderstand but even though both lawyers say that they didn't make any money from being filmed and the shows may not have even resulted in more paying clients they wouldn't necessarily advise other lawyers to avoid reality TV under the right circumstances. 
What's your advice if another attorney is approached to be in a documentary about one of their clients? You know, I, I've gotten quite a few calls from other attorneys who have been approached by documentary filmmakers about getting involved in a project that they're doing. And, you know, they wanted my advice about it. And I tell them, you know, despite the fact that I went through this, I'm not necessarily an expert. Um, one of the things that, that I discovered is there's something called entertainment law that is very different than criminal law. <laughs> and that they might want to consult with an entertainment lawyer because you will have to sign releases and there is language, terms of art in those releases that are not what you think they are. And they are, you know, a custom and practice used in the entertainment industry. And so you really should be careful about any kind of agreement you sign. And so getting some advice from an entertainment lawyer is good. And then secondly, you really need to check out the filmmaker, um, get some idea of what they've done before. Are they legitimate, serious documentarians, or are they more in the, what I would call the exploitative field of entertainment? And you really can, you know, you can't be assured of that in your own case, but if you look at what they've done in the past and you find that they've really been more sensational and exploitative in the way they cover, a real true crime case, then that's a bad sign. And I would shy away from doing that. But if it's somebody serious who's got a decent body of work and you meet with them and you're persuaded that they're, they care about being fair and whatever their goal might be in presenting this case, then, you know, then sure, go ahead. One of the big bits of advice that I would give to them is one, if you do take this on, make sure you don't focus more of the attention on that one client than you normally would because you don't want to upset any of your other clients because they think that they don't have time for them and that you're only focusing their attention on this one individual. And two, I certainly didn't want to be thrown into the camera because I didn't want our district attorney's office or our judges to think, oh, it's just a show, it's just a game for you, because it certainly was not for me. I, I believed in Janelle's defenses and in her representation, but I could see how for others it may look like, oh, they're just getting in this just to get on TV or just to get on camera. In the opening credits for The Real World, the show often identified as establishing the modern reality TV genre there's a line about when things start getting real. After speaking of Jerry, Dustin, and Michael, that's about how I feel, too. These shows that I love so much are not quite what I thought they were, and the lawyers' experiences weren't what I expected. Going forward, when I'm watching my frivolous reality TV shows and a lawyer shows up to resolve an issue, or I've tuned into a true crime documentary that includes attorneys talking about their work, I'll appreciate their contributions a bit more, knowing now about the various challenges lawyers face that we don't get to see on screen. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. Next time, a tattoo artist, a Baptist deacon, and a lawyer walk into a podcast. Seriously, though, 
we'll look at a recently repealed Columbus, Georgia law hardly anyone knew about prohibiting tattooing on Sundays. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app, or share your thoughts or ideas with us on Twitter at ABA Journal, or my own handle at SFW70, Roman numeral 2. The ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is a joint production by the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network. This episode was produced by Evan DeSherry and me. Mix, edit, and invaluable guidance provided by Adam Lockwood. Support and encouragement from executive producer Lawrence Coletti. The music for this episode is licensed from soundstripe.com. You can find more details about the music we used in the show notes of this episode. Special thanks to our guests, Michael Beck, Jerry Buting, and Dustin Sullivan for their time and assistance in exploring this unusual situation. 